So, Mark. Yes? I want to talk to you about toys. Oh, God, no. Here it comes. What do you mean? You love toys too much. I do love toys. I collect various toys. Way too many. But they're all so fun. Are they? You just look at them. And they bring me joy. I don't know. I never played with action figures or anything like that. Okay, but what was your favorite toy then? I mean, I liked stuffed animals because you could cuddle them. And I liked Bop It. <laughs> Twist it! I remember. I played a lot of Bop It. Pass it. Bop It was great. We were more of a game family than a toy family. So I don't remember having a lot of toys. I had like Pokemon cards. Did you actually play the game? No, of course not. So I feel like I was apparently a rarity for actually playing the game. Yeah, I mostly used them to sort. I would shuffle them and then sort them. Little kids like sorting. They like categorizing. Yeah. I also had the Harry Potter trading card game. Which I also played. I think I played that once. It was like, this is not fun. You know what's fun? Board games. (laughs) I thought you were going to say sorting them. (laughs) Also that. Those ones were harder to sort because there was less of a defined, like, scheme. You could put them into piles of, like, people, but then there were no numbers to build off of. I mean, the cards were literally numbered. Yeah, but that's not fun. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. I think I had my own system. So I, of course, do collect toys. I collect uh, the Toy Story characters. I've got a bunch of them in my room. I also collect superhero action figures. And superhero action figures are actually what I want to talk about today. Because this movie we're discussing today features a guy who had his own movie about two months ago. Who? What? Oh, Venom. Venom. Ah, yes. That movie that exists and I did not see. That movie made so much money. We're getting Venom 2. I can't believe that made as much money as it did. It made so much money. Anyway, the reason I wanted to talk about it is because the origin of Venom in the real world is tied to toys. So in the 1980s, before Marvel's owned by Disney, Marvel's just a small comic publishing house. And they were trying to get in money from selling toys. So they made a contract with Mattel. And Mattel was going to produce toys based on Marvel superheroes. And Mattel said, all right, but we want you to, like, make a storyline in the comics that's designed to, like, sell some of these toys. So they created this big 12-issue crossover event called Secret Wars. Officially, it was called Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars. And Mattel had all these requirements. Like, they wanted them to change the character design of Doctor Doom so that he would look a little less medieval and a little more science fiction-y. There had to be things in the story that would work as playsets and, like, vehicles and all these things that, like, didn't really make sense for New York-based Marvel superheroes. They are just transplanted all these characters to an alien planet where there are all these, like, pre-made fortresses and stuff that they're based out of for 12 issues of just people punching each other. It's the dumbest story ever, but it sold, like, gangbusters. And it was all designed to sell toys and there are weird stuff with these toys like each one of them the action figures like came with this weird shield thing they're very strange but one of the things they did was oh we could sell more toys if there were more costumes and marvel had just recently bought an idea from a fan for 200 dollars of a black costume from spider-man And so they paid $200 for this idea. And then in Secret Wars, I want to say it was issue seven. This is just based on my memory, so I don't know off the top of my head. It's a bad story. No one should read it. Yeah. I think it's issue seven. Spider-Man's costume is so torn up that he's like, I'm not going to have a costume soon and I'll be naked on this alien planet. Which some other people were too. Colossus definitely had sex with a native of this alien planet. And Thor is like, oh yeah, there's a machine in there that'll just give you a new costume in great shape. And Spider-Man's like, okay. And he walks in and there's all these machines. He's like, well, I don't know which one is the right one. So he walks up and he holds his hand under a thing and a black ball drops into it and the black ball covers him and that's the origin of the black costume. And so for a long time, it was just an alien costume until the late 80s. By this point, 
They've figured out it's an alien symbiote. Peter's gotten rid of it by going up into the bell tower of a church and driven it away because it doesn't like sound. And that's when, then, in the late 80s, it becomes Venom when it falls down on Eddie Brock. But it all started because Mattel wanted to sell more toys. I mean... That's unsurprising to me, because I think a lot of things are made to sell toys. Well, yes. I mean, there are some cases, like, Transformers started out as toys, and then they made the show to sell the toys. Yeah, and Bionicle also was toys, and then got spun off into, like, a TV show and stuff. I was, like, so unaware of the show, but I was so into the lore of Bionicle. For a long time, if you subscribed to the Lego magazine, they would ship an issue of a Bionicle comic book with it that I don't think was published anywhere else. If it was, I never knew. And so I would just wait for my Lego magazine to come to get the next issue of Bionicle. And then around the time they did like a soft reboot, they stopped sending them out and I was really annoyed. I had a lot of Bionicle toys. Yeah, I was really into that universe. The toys I liked most were like Legos and Kinects and Playmobil and stuff like that. Yeah, those guys are cool. I like to build things. Another crazy thing that was obviously just to sell toys was the stupid trolls in Frozen. Oh, yeah. The worst part of Frozen, by far. The worst part of Frozen, and similarly, the worst part of Moana is the Kakamora, the coconut demons. Yeah, things that are just there to sell toys in Disney movies are so obvious these days and so annoying. Yeah. The question is, this is a two-part question, are Porgs designed to sell toys? And two, do we care? Yes and no. Correct. Those are the correct answers. I love porgs. When a porg first appeared in a Last Jedi trailer, I was like, that's going to be a cute plushie, and I love it. Yeah, I was on board for porgs. The alternative version of that is the Ewoks, which are similarly designed to sell toys, to the point that the word Ewok has never been said in a Star Wars movie. Oh my god. They don't say the word Ewok in Return of the Jedi. I can't believe they haven't said it in the new ones, honestly. Ewoks have never appeared since then. Yeah. But it was just the omnipresence of merchandising Everyone knew what it was called. And Star Wars, I think, was definitely one of the big starts of that. Well, yeah, and that's in part because, of course, Lucas, when he made his distribution deal with 20th Century Fox for the original Star Wars, he got paid almost nothing to make it. But the deal was that he would get, like, 100% of merchandising profits. Yeah, and boy, did that pay out for him. Yeah, it was huge, but that's part of why there's so much Star Wars merch out there. Yeah, um, well, today we were talking about another thing where I'm sure there's lots of toys about. Oh, are there? So, let's start the show. Let's do it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm Yang. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this, of course, is an investigative podcast. We're like journalists, like photojournalists, like Peter Parker. We go out and we try to find out what's happening, and hopefully what's happening is something that involves us, and we'll take a picture of ourselves, and then we'll sell it. And what we're studying is the most important question of our time, does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? Will, we are doing the medium that might be the exact opposite of photography. <laughs> I mean, we're photographing our voices. Our words are the real vehicle. They're the real message. You know what they say? A word is worth a thousand pictures. Okay, but you said this is photojournalism and it's exclusively I audio said we're journalism. like photojournalists. I didn't say we are photojournalists. Have you ever heard of a simile, Mark? We could have a lesson right now. We could talk about similes. Don't you use your teacher tone with me. So a simile is when you make All a right. comparison using the word like or as. The question and a is, metaphor is when you do it without saying like or dateable? as. You know, it doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. Either way, we're going to dig in and see what's there. So you just sit your butt down, young man. 
Living with a teacher can suck sometimes. <laughs> okay, um, this week, as we've said, we are celebrating the release of Into the Spider-Verse, which looks real cool by taking a look at a previous adaptation of our friendly neighborhood wall crawler, Sam Raimi's 2007 flick, Spider-Man 3. The third in the Spider-Man trilogy. Well, according to Will's notes, I'm supposed to chat about Geostorm right no, now. No, I forgot to change it. Uh, this movie was too much. So I think it's interesting to watch this movie now because its reputation is so bad. And I think its reputation is much worse than this movie is. I would agree with that, but this movie is bad. I think this movie... Don't you say it's good. Isn't good, but it's close. No, I really don't think it was that good. I just was watching it, and there were so many things I would have changed. Yes. Just so many. It's worth noting, Sam Raimi himself was upset with this movie. Oh, I'm sure. Something we'll talk about. But there is more that works in this movie than people give it credit for. Okay, I'd buy that. And it's interesting, this is coming after ages of working towards Spider-Man adaptations. And of course, there were two before, and Spider-Man 2 is probably as close to a perfect superhero movie as there is. I need to rewatch that one. It's I don't so remember good. it at all. It's so good. Um... We talked about this a little bit on the Iron Man episode, but when Marvel was just a comics company, Stan Lee put a lot of work into trying to build up Marvel's brand, and one of the ways that he thought would be good to do that would be getting movies made of these Marvel characters. And so he spent a lot of time trying to get people to adapt them, and like selling film rights to studios to get them to do it, and it was never really taken off. There was the Hulk TV show that was pretty successful. There was a Spider-Man TV movie in the 70s, but they were never getting like a real theatrical release. In the early 90s there was that fantastic four movie from roger corman that went nowhere that was just made so that fox could keep the rights oh the one that's the joke in in arrested development. development yeah yeah at the same time that that's happening that's when tim burton's batmans are lighting up the theaters so there's proof that these superhero movies can be a success but marvel just can't get one made and actually at that point spider-man their top property besides the x-men is in development with a script by james cameron Really? Yeah, that script's online. You can find it. I've actually got it. I'll throw it up on Twitter at some point. But Will, do they turn off the dark? They do not turn off the dark, unfortunately. That's the fatal flaw. Uh, Spider-Man does have sex with Mary Jane on top of the Brooklyn Bridge in it. Oh, wow. There's a lot of people on that bridge all the time. Well, it's on top. Still, man. It's a kind of a creepy scene, actually. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> There's gross. a lot of like weird monologuing about like spider mating habits. Oh, no. I did not care no. for it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it does feature Doc Ock, which is good because Doc Ock is awesome. Dr. Octor? Right, Dr. Octor. And so then, of course, we know that kind of fell by the wayside. And eventually, the rights were bought by Columbia, which is how we wound up with the 2002 Sam Raimi Spider-Man, which then became the 2004 Spider-Man 2, and then in 2007, Spider-Man Three. A movie that is too much movie. It is a lot of movie. And I think that's pretty obvious. It's hard to watch this and not think that there is too much movie. Yeah. It's worth noting, you look at Spider-Man 1, the only bad guy is Norman Osborn's Green Goblin. Yeah. Spider-Man 2, the only bad guy is Alfred Molina's Dr. Octopus. Spider-Man 3, we've got James Franco as what is credited as the new Goblin, which is a terrible name. Ugh. We've got Topher Grace as Venom. Ugh. And we've got... THC. THC. Get another hit of THC as Flint Marco, the Sandman. Ah, uh, yes. Three villains. Every good movie has three separate villains. Yeah, one for each time we've taken a hit of THC. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just have not yet landed on which villain to cut. Yeah, that's the tricky thing that I can't figure out. Because thematically, they all do work their way in. Yeah. It's just that there's not enough room for all of them. So you'll go for a while without seeing any one of them. And when they show up again, you're like, 
oh yeah like i was actively forgetting yeah always about one of the three villains honestly i think i was leading towards cutting the new goblin and just like not bringing harry back yeah that's kind of the one that is least connected to the themes of the movie. Yeah. And that's kind of the problem with franchise filmmaking is that Spider-Man 2 does a lot of work, I don't think detracting from that movie in any way, but really setting up like, this is what's coming next. They probably felt like they backed themselves into a corner a bit. And of course, Sam Raimi really likes working with James Franco. He did it again in Oz the Great and Powerful, but that's probably the one that doesn't fit as much. It's interesting to read a lot of the coverage of this movie when it was coming out in like the fan press and like the interviews with Sam Raimi and stuff like that. He talks a lot over and over again in these interviews about satisfying the comic book fans and about that having been an active goal during production. And I think a lot of the worst parts of this movie came out of that desire. Yeah. You should just focus on making a good movie, which I think is should satisfy people. I think that's what he wanted to do. For example, we're going to talk about Gwen Stacy later. Originally in the movie, that was just like a random girl who recognized Peter in a restaurant. But then some of the producers, like uh, Avi Arad, were like, oh, no, no, you should make that Gwen Stacy. And he's like, but if I put in Gwen Stacy, then fans are going to have all these expectations about the character that I don't intend to pay off. Right. And the producer's like, no, do it. The fans want it. And he's like, all right, fine. And similarly, his original plan was to have the Sandman and the Vulture be the bad guys in these movies. And Avi Arad told him basically like, ugh, what are you doing, Sam? You keep making movies with all of your favorite villains from the 70s these obscure guys that the kids don't care about i'm like sorry the bad guys were the norman osborn green goblin and dr octopus the two premier spider-man villains yeah and so avi arad is telling him like you can't keep doing these obscure ones that you grew up on this is a quote Raimi recounting what avi arad told him quote the fans love venom he is the fan favorite all spider-man readers love venom let me tell you he's not the worst carnage is the worst as much as I'm looking forward to kind of seeing Woody Harrelson play him in Venom 2, Carnage is the worst. Venom is the second worst. I don't know anything about Carnage. Carnage honest. is Venom without any personality. It's just killing people, but the same powers. Ah. Uh, uh, gross. So, but so you feel like Sam Raimi wanted to make a smaller movie, and at one point they actually talked about splitting this into two different movies because it was getting so unwieldy, but nobody could land on a satisfying intermediate climax. I mean, if they wanted, they could have just done a good redemption movie for Harry Osborn, where he becomes the goblin, he then gets over it, there would have needed to be another villain because he had to die at the end. So they could have picked Sandman and Goblin could have worked. Yes. I feel like actually any combination of the two could potentially work. Three was just too many. I like Sandman and Goblin as an idea because I kind of landed on different places. But in some of these interviews, Sam Raimi talked about, for him, one of the most important themes being the idea of like accessing other people's point of view and talking about how that's something that runs throughout the movie. Peter can't understand Mary Jane's point of view about how she's feeling. Peter and May and... Sandman all have different perspectives on Uncle Ben's murder. Peter and Connors have different perspectives on how risky the symbiote is. And then crucially, there's the different ideas on the death of Norman Osborn, from Peter to Harry to Bernard. Right. And so that could potentially be something to play with. And then I kind of like where you're going with a movie about the madness and death of Harry Osborn, something that was done really well in the Spectacular Spider-Man comics of the 80s. 
Yeah. If you ever read one Spider-Man comic, probably one of the best ones to read is Spectacular Spider-Man number 200, which is the death of Harry Osborn, where he like yeah. is the Green Goblin and kind of going crazy, but he dies with Peter at his side. No, I think that works. And the amnesia thing, I'm wondering like if they just did a new Goblin one, do they need the amnesia plot line? Probably not, because it was just a way to take him out of the movie for a while. Because there's then... not room for him the whole time. Yeah, it's just... There's so many contrived things in this movie that they needed to do to make room. And that's why I don't think it's a good movie because that's like a fault of like making a movie. Right. The movie that's is like totally overstuffed. Flaw. It's totally overstuffed. That's what I'm saying is like there are a lot of pieces of it that I think work. Yeah. But as a unit, it doesn't quite congeal. That's why I don't that's why I say it's a bad movie. It is bad at being a movie. <laughs> yes. And on the other hand, you could take a movie like Infinity War. Yeah. Which is also just like, lots of things are happening! But that's the point of it. Whereas this is trying to be another contained Spider-Man story, like the previous two. And it could have been a good movie, but they decided to make it too many movies. That said, I think, I'd say it's like 1.5 movies. Yeah. If you haven't watched this movie since 2007, it might be worth revisiting it. Yeah, because it's, uh, they're good scenes. Yeah. There are parts of this movie that work. And I think the things that this movie is maligned for are the wrong things. Yeah. This movie is maligned for Peter Parker dancing, which is maybe the best part. I can't get over how ugly the hair is. It's part of the and point. It's part of the point. I understand that, but it's still painful to watch. And I do appreciate that every woman is really creeped out by him. That's the key to it. That's the key to it. That's the key that makes this movie work. Yeah. Every woman is disgusted by him. Which is not at all how I remembered it. In my memory, Peter Parker, possessed by the Venom symbiote, is like dancing through the street, like flirting with women, being kind of aggressive and creepy and weird. But everyone's like loving it. It's like the celebration of like... Peter Parker and how cool he is now that he's being a bad boy. But on rewatching it, every woman that he passes looks at him disgusted, unnerved. What is this guy? And so yeah. what it comes out instead is the Venom symbiote brings out the worst in you, especially toxic masculinity. Oh, for sure. He is the worst. People recognize him as the worst. And if you go around as like a pickup artist, out of control flirt, gross dude the only reasonable explanation for that the only way you could be that kind of person and have us think we're a good person is if an alien has taken over your brain that is true and i do think that scene works better than people remember it but that hair they could have just made it slightly less awful. he's got to be able to do the flip the flip is part the of it the flip made me want to lose my lunch i loved it i hated everything about it and this whole movie that is the only time where i was just like oh yes this does seem like a man that could be part of a thing called <laughs> the pussy posse. posse i always forget that he was in the pussy posse yeah it's because it's disgusting demeaning towards women and the worst if you don't know what the pussy posse is in the late 90s, early 2000s, Leonardo DiCaprio and his crew referred to themselves as the Pussy Posse. Including Tobey Maguire and two people you've never heard of. Yeah. They ruled Manhattan and were the hit guys at all the clubs and stuff and just sounded nasty. Gross. It seems like they've mostly gotten away from that, except maybe Leonardo DiCaprio, who keeps dating 20-year-olds. No, I think Leonardo DiCaprio is still gross, and I think we just don't see any more Tobey Maguire. He was in a couple, maybe like five years ago, he was in this IFC miniseries called The Spoils of Babylon. Which I kind of loved. It's this parody of primetime soaps, and it's just hilariously overdramatic. He and Kristen Wiig are the stars of it, and it's really funny. Yeah, I was meaning to watch that. Is it still online anywhere? It was on Netflix when I watched it, but again, that was like five years ago, so I don't know. Can you believe he's 43 now? Tobey Maguire is? Yeah. Wow. He was married for 10 years. Huh, to who? 
uh jennifer meyer yeah she's an american jewelry designer okay that's cool um so yeah spider-man 3 has this like kind of mixed reputation yeah where the raimi trilogy in general is remembered really fondly Mm -hmm. but spider-man 3 is often remembered as this sort of poop at the end of it if the spider-man trilogy is a person spider-man 3 is the poop hanging out of their butt at the end that said, it did arrive with a lot of fanfare. It was a big deal. It opened on May 4th, 2007. That first Friday of May, Superhero Weekend. Yeah. Which was just being established by then. The next year, Iron Man would open that weekend and really lock it in. Right. It opened to $151 million. Good God. Huge opening weekend. Yeah. And it set an opening weekend record for opening in 4,253 theaters. More theaters than a movie had ever been in before. Okay. That record lasted three weeks. Oh my God. What was What beat it? Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End. Makes sense. Another movie that's kind of a mess, but I think works a lot more than people give it credit for. I cannot comment. I have not seen it long enough to judge. That movie is an epic, and I give it a lot of credit for that. Like, it is trying to do big things. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, I appreciate it for that. I should rewatch it. Do you want to start talking about the uh, romance? Yeah, let's do that, actually, because as we've said, this is an overstuffed movie. It is 1.5 movies. So every episode, we break down the romance of the movie that we're talking about into the five points that best exemplify that movie's romantic plotline. Right. But this is an overstuffed movie. (laughs) Yes. So I didn't have enough room, much like Sam Raimi. So there are six points this week. You have set a bad precedent. No, it's always five unless it's more than one movie in a movie. That's true. So, like, if we did, like, Cloud Atlas, we would be allowed 30 points because it's six movies. <laughs> We've done a point zero before, too. I think. We have. Yeah. I know the parent trap had a point zero. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's start off. Point number one. They say that falling in love is wonderful. It's wonderful. So they say. The beginning of the movie, it's opening night of Mary Jane's show. Manhattan Memories. Ooh. Suspiciously close to Manhattan Melodies. Yeah, I'm a little bit curious about this. Is that a shout out? Here's the thing. There's no way to know these aren't the same show. Because <laughs> again, all we see is one song that's about nothing. Where she walks down some stairs. She walks down some stairs. She sounds good. I think she's great. Yeah. But I mean, apparently... we are also... We, like Peter Parker, are stationed in the front row. Yes. So we don't know if her voice carries beyond the front row. I think we're both, you know, on board the Dunst train, too. Yes, we love Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. So the movie actually starts off with some voiceover. Peter's, like, talking about his life, how things are better than they were when Spider-Man was super hunted. Now people love Spider-Man. And we hear him talking about how he's in love with the girl of his dreams. He's looking at a ring in a pawn shop window. And then he goes to MJ's show, and he's watching, meanwhile, Harry Osborn. Peter's best friend and the son of his worst enemy, who was killed, is up in the balcony. Oh, Harry, by now, from the end of Spider-Man 2, knows that Peter is Spider-Man. And so he's got these, like, opera glasses in the balcony. He's watching Mary Jane and then watching Peter and watching. And it's James Franco being very creepy. Yeah. James Franco in general creeps me out. Even happy James Franco. Yeah. I like him in these movies. Yeah, because he's supposed to be creepy. He's supposed to be creepy. (laughs) So, after the show, this is like the one moment in the movie where Peter and MJ are on the same page and happy. Right, they're happy together. MJ is overjoyed with getting to do theater. She says that she wants to sing on stage for the rest of her life with Peter in the front row. Oh. It's kind of cute. And Peter's like, well, everyone loves Spider-Man these days, and I'm in grad school, and that's great, even if people are shooting spitballs at me, which is like not a thing people do at that point. 
<laughs> movies in general make college out to be so much more immature than it is. Yeah. Like, in Legally Blonde and other stuff where people actually care about what others do, that's not a thing in college. No! People don't care about you. No one's shooting spitballs at someone in class. Yeah, no one's calling you a nerd for, you know, paying attention in college. Right. It's crazy. So anyway, things are going great. Peter says, like, yeah, I'll be there. I'll be in the front row. And she's like, tell me you love me. And he's like, I love you. And then a meteor crashes into Earth and brings the Venom symbiote with it. And that's point number. Oh, no. The last thing is then we also see Peter goes to visit dear old Aunt May, a character who is Benjamin buttoning her way through the Spider-Man adaptations. (laughs) Indeed she is. If you haven't looked at the successive actresses who have played Aunt May... It is pretty impressive. It goes from Rosemary Harris in this one to Sally Field in the Andrew Garfield movies to Marissa Tomei in the Tom Holland ones. Yeah, she's definitely um, going backwards. Yeah, so in this one, it's always portrayed as like Peter's elderly aunt, whereas in like Civil War and Homecoming, it's Peter's cool, young, hot aunt. Yeah. Like Tony Stark flirts with her. It's definitely a great aunt. In these movies, I'd say. You kind of get that impression. Yeah. But anyway, so Peter goes to see May, and he tells her that he plans to ask Mary Jane to marry him. Which, they're 23. They're young. They're young. And they act it. Yes, they do. And that's the problem with me when they talk about marriage. And May calls that out. She's like, really? Yeah. And she's not telling him no, but she's like, you know, Ben asked me to marry him, and I told him we had to wait because we weren't old enough. Right. And that's her first response, which should be a hint to Peter. Yeah, Peter should be like, hmm, maybe this is a good idea. It's weird that you led with that, May. Yeah. But she talks about how she made him wait. And the really important thing is when you're going to be married to someone, you have to be understanding. You have to put your spouse before yourself, which really is like one of the key themes of this movie. Yeah. And I think in a weird way where a lot of superhero movies are about learning to care about like the greater good learning to care about, say, an abstract good beyond yourself. Right. I think this movie is kind of a reverse, where Peter Parker starts out being like, immediately, I always have to go and save other people. I always have to go and save the city or do whatever. But Peter has to learn that sometimes he needs to put the people who are close to him as priorities. Right. It's kind of an inverse of maybe what we might expect. Whereas you look at, say, Iron Man, where Tony Stark starts out only really acting on things that are related to him. He goes to Golmira because it was his weapons that were used. Not because he's like, wow, it's horrible that this town was taken over. Whereas Peter starts out going out for just like all the random stuff. And he has to learn that he needs not so much a Spider-Man, but as an individual to care for the stuff that's nearby. This is a movie about Spider-Man learning how to be Peter Parker. Yes. Not Peter Parker learning how to be Spider-Man. Which is an interesting idea. Right. And that, you know, is a thing that you can only do as the third movie in a trilogy. Spider-Man needs to be established. Right. You have to get Spider-Man first. But this is the point where he's become Spider-Man and that's all he can think about. And he has to learn how to re-engage with the people he loves. Which is where I think the black suit, if there was more time to focus on it, could have been really interesting. Yeah. Because the Venom symbiote, as something that expresses the worst in yourself, in the comics, it literally, like, will take him out at night. And with him still kind of asleep, swing through the streets of New York, like, doing stuff. And so Peter, in these comics, when they were slowly revealing that it was an alien, was, like, always tired and, like, didn't know what was wrong with his body or stuff like that. And I kind of love the idea of this Spider-Man learning to be Peter Parker, having these, like, crazy Spider-Man adventures at night that he's not even really conscious of. And I do think, actually, one of the coolest parts of this movie is when Peter, in the black suit, is hunting Sandman in the subway tunnels. Right. That's a creepy scene. It is. Because he seems 
seems very animal and kind of menacing in a way that we've never seen Spider-Man in the movies before. And I liked that. And there was another thing where I was like, this movie has too much movie in it, but I wish I could see a little more of that. Yeah. The movie needs focus. And because it's not focused, everything is worse. Right. And it's, I think what's weird about this, and we talked about this, how we couldn't decide necessarily which villain to cut, is that all of the ideas fit, but there's not room to explore them. Yeah. You know, things would have to be cut to make sense. And this movie has good ideas. It just doesn't develop them well. But so anyway, at the end of this night, May gives Peter her wedding ring. She says, clearly you're going to do this. Do something very special for Mary Jane. Make it something she'll never forget. Which turns out to be an indictment of Peter. Because his very special thing is asking her out at dinner. Which like, come on, Peter. The most cliche thing. Yeah. He's 23. I know, but come on, man. Also, he's he's Spider-Man. Take her on a roof. I know. Is he still in college? I watched this movie and I think he's in grad school, but I don't know. Yeah, he's old for college. Peter, take her on a rooftop. Take her to the Brooklyn Bridge where he had sex with her in James Cameron's movie. Take her anywhere. Like, you can sling through the city holding her. Find somewhere else. Fancy restaurant, Peter. A fancy restaurant that that scene squeezes in so many French stereotypes (laughs) in a short amount of time. So that actor, the actor who plays the maitre d', is in all three of Raimi's movies in different roles. Oh, that's fun. He's really good in Spider-Man 2 where Mary Jane's in a different show and Peter shows up late and he's trying to get Bruce Campbell to let him in. And Campbell's like, no, you don't get to go into the play late. Like, that's not how this works. Yeah. But apparently, according to a thing with Bruce Campbell, Sam Raimi told him that he was playing the same character across all those movies, and that the character was Quentin Beck, who is Mysterio, another one of those classic Spider-Man villains, who originally is a, like, Hollywood VFX designer in a pre-digital era. So he uses, like, crazy visual effects stuff to perpetrate his crimes. Oh. And I'm pretty sure Jake Gyllenhaal is playing him in Far From Home next summer. Should be this guy. He's so fun. Yeah. I'm a huge Mysterio fan. But anyway, May gives Peter the ring. Says, do something nice for Mary Jane. Make it something she'll never forget. And that takes us to point number two. The next day. Mary Jane got a bad review. A real bad review. They did not like her. Not at all. And she shows up at Peter's apartment real upset. He's doing that thing where she just wants to complain about her problem and he's trying to solve it. Instead of just listening. And specifically, solve it and move on. Yeah, he wants to move on too fast. He's not letting her have room to express her motion. Right, he's like, oh yeah, like, don't worry about it. Spider-Man gets criticized all the time, but you just gotta get back on the horse. You'll be fine. People will come around. He has good intentions, but executes it very poorly in terms of being in a relationship. Right, and... She's asking, like, try to think about how I feel. And he's like, I get criticized all the time. Don't worry about it. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And she brings out a really, I think, cogent point. Peter is an orphan, but he's raised by May and Ben, who love him a lot. She's like, this review sounds like something my dad would say to me. Yeah. Because she grew up in an abusive home. Which is really harsh, and he just glosses right over it. He blows past it, and at that point, the police scanner is like, yeah, we've got a crane collapsing. And he just looks at her like, what you gonna do? You know what I gotta do. And he actually says, go get him, tiger. Like, he's expecting her to encourage him to go out and do this. And the next thing we know, he's wearing his suit and he's slinging out the window. Yeah, it's, um, mm, it's painful to watch. Yeah. And this is, this scene proves they should not be getting married. Yeah, he is not ready to get married. No, not at all. But he goes and he saves the people who are in the tower, specifically Gwen Stacy, his lab partner. Mm -hmm. He didn't know she was there when he went, but she happened to be there. 
smart model Gwen Stacy. Exactly. Played in this movie by Bryce Dallas Howard. Played well in The Amazing Spider-Man by Emma Stone. That's a movie with a great, great cast. All the performances are really good, but the movie is pretty dumb. I remember enjoying it when I watched it. I enjoy it too because the performances are all great. Like, I love Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man. I love Emma Stone as Gwen. I'm always a Dennis Leary guy. (laughs) I don't watch, like, his weird FX crap. Yeah. But when he's used well, I dig me some Dennis Leary. He's great as George Stacy. Martin Sheen is Ben Parker married to Sally Field. (laughs) I'm into that. Yeah. She's been married to two presidents. She was married to Lincoln, too. Okay, so he saves Gwen, and... In response, the city is like, wow, you saved this tower. You saved all these people. You saved the daughter of the police captain, George Stacy. We're going to throw you a celebration and give Spider-Man the key to the city. Hooray. Yay. So there's a big parade. But before that, MJ shows up at work and she sees someone else rehearsing her part. Oh, this is an incredibly uncomfortable scene. Yeah, she shows up and somebody else is singing her song. She's like, what is happening? And I guess it's like the director and the composer, two guys are like, wait, did no one tell you what the heck? Like somebody should have told her agent who should have told her what is happening. And she was fired because the reviews were so bad on her. Yeah, so after one performance, they fired her. Probably one preview? Without telling her. And I feel like there must be something in her contract to make that not okay. Yeah, she needs Puss in Boots, the agent of organized labor, to come in and rescue her. Yeah, fingers crossed she gets What if Kirsten Dunst, as a human, were the co-lead of the Puss in Boots movie that we're gonna make? That sounds great. I'm on board. Let's do it. got it. it. Done. Amazing. So MJ is upset, but she's still going to the thing to see Peter get the key to the city as Spider-Man. And, like, she's kind of bummed. Like, she sees people cheering for Spider-Man as he swings by, and she's like, I feel so crappy, and he is at his peak. Yeah. And this sucks. And he's not doing enough to, like, acknowledge I'm feeling crappy. Right. It's worth noting, they meet up before the actual ceremony, he in his street clothes, and she does not tell him about the firing. She just says, I'm proud of you, give him a good show. Right. And he's like, "Ah, don't don't worry about that review, like, you seem down, don't, we'll be laughing about that review soon enough, you're gonna be great, because he thinks she's still in the show. Yeah. And that one is, like, genuinely really sad, that exchange there. It's sad, but that's also, I feel like... For what he knows, that is kind of the right thing to say in that moment. Right. He's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And that one is less like, oh, this is uncomfortable to watch. It's uncomfortable because of dramatic irony, like what we know that he doesn't. Right. But it's still, you know, that is a nicer thing to say. It is. Anyway, during the ceremony, then Peter swings in as Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy... Gives a nice speech about how he's this great hero. That just saved her life. That just saved her life. And then some people in the audience start chanting for Gwen to kiss Spider-Man. Which is a little bit of a weird thing to start chanting. Yeah, it was very weird. The whole thing was weird. And Peter's like, it'll make him happy. Go for it. And so it's an exact replication of the upside down kiss from the original Spider-Man. Gwen peels down his mask just a little bit and kisses him. A little kid in the front row is like, yuck! Understandably, MJ is Pissed. She's furious. The front page of the New York Post the next day is Spidey Scores. Yeah, and as she says later, this was our kiss. Right. It's like a very specific, weird, unusual thing. Yeah, and that it was their moment that brought, like, was the first acknowledgement of their love. Well, from before she even knew who Spider-Man was. Right, and he just trampled on it in her eyes by... Pulling it with someone who he barely knows, slash, well, might be cheating on her with? MJ, at this point, doesn't realize Peter knows Gwen at all. 
Oh, that's right. Because he to MJ, she's just some random girl. It actually gets worse as we move into point number three. Yeah, so this is the part where they're kind of at their lowest in a way. Uh, not quite. It gets a little bit lower. I mean, it gets lower under duress. Fair. So that's an interesting position. So point number three, Peter is set up to do the proposal. Right. He has put the bare minimum of thought into it. <laughs> He's got a reservation at this nice French restaurant. He gets Bruce Campbell to put the ring in like a glass of champagne. And a he hands- A dumb idea. A dumb idea. As you see later, he has to fish it out with, with a, a fork, fork. Which MJ would have to do before she could put it on. Right. At least put it on a piece of cake or something. One thing he does that again, it's a dramatic irony thing, but is kind of nice in theory is he gives some music and he's like, yo, could you have someone play this when it's going on? And it's MJ's solo from the show. Right. Which we hear right. because as MJ is leaving, Bruce Campbell's like, oh yeah, we're getting started. And so Peter is left alone as this love song is played. And it's, he still doesn't know she was fired. Right. So it sucks for her, but it makes sense. Right. That's the one thing in his planned proposal that is like kind of a cool move. Right. It's the only thing. But this also at this point is still a little bit on MJ because she hasn't. She's not being honest with him on that. She's not being open with him. But I think it's obvious from the get-go that she is not super comfortable even in this situation. The first thing she says when she arrives at the restaurant is, is this place in your budget? Yeah, the whole thing is really uncomfortable to watch and peter's like trying to be excited talking about the day and she's like you don't know how i'm feeling he's like no no no, i get it exactly because i'm an i he thinks she's talking about like being on broadway and like that's big and weird and he's like no no no, i'm an icon kids are going around with my t-shirt like i'm very popular as a halloween costume and he's just like getting bigger and bigger he's so excited to be accepted this is a year after in the previous movie he gave up on being spider-man because he was tired of the hate he got for it yeah it's still like Dude, read the room. Reel it back in. She's not happy. This is not about you. He's not paying attention at all to how she's feeling. Even though she hasn't told him stuff, he's not reading these visual cues. And at this point, Gwen walks in. She comes over and chats. She's like, hey, how's it going? And Peter introduces them. And Gwen is like, oh yeah, like Peter talks about you all the time. It's so great to meet you. And MJ is bewildered by this because she's never heard of Gwen. Right. And Gwen like... Gwen's, like, got her hand, like, pretty... She's got her hand in a kind of a possessive mode. On on Peter's shoulder, yeah. Which is, I think, supposed to be a thing that you could see as innocent or not, depending on your viewpoint. Yes. And that, I think, is a good choice on the film's part, because it's so ambiguous. And MJ is really upset by this now. She's like, you don't know what's going on in my life, and apparently I don't know what's going on in yours. She's your lab partner. You've never mentioned her. She had her hands all over you. And, of course, she's the one who gave you the key to the city. And MJ's like, I will never forget that. And the fact that he kissed her. And she says, like, are you trying to push me away? And Peter's like, what are you talking about? Like, I love you. I don't want to push you away. And MJ leaves. And, like, the next day... Peter's trying to call her and she's not answering. Right. Call from the payphone he has to use. Right. The payphone in his hallway between his apartment and Ursula's. Yeah. A role that filmed in 2010 or later would be played by Lauren Lapkin. Oh, of course. For sure. It's worth noting that one of the times we see Peter call, MJ is about to pick up. But misses it. Right. She picks up right as he hangs up. It reminded me of in Say Anything when Lloyd is calling over and over again, trying to get back together. And she keeps almost picking up, but not. 
Yeah. But anyway, then, at the same time, our Sandman plotline, Sandman in a huge retcon is revealed to have been the actual person who killed Uncle Ben. Which is weird, because don't we watch that guy kill Uncle Ben? I don't know if we do. I haven't watched Spider-Man 1 in a long time. We definitely see that guy as the person Peter doesn't stop. And we see him as the guy Peter catches in the end. I don't know that we see him shoot Ben. In this, we do have a flashback where we see Flint Marco shoot him. Right. And they're told, okay, this guy got out. He's on the run. And we're pretty sure he's the guy who killed Ben. So Peter's really upset about that too. And Aunt May called Mary Jane to say like, hey, Peter's pretty upset about this. Like, I figured I should put that on your radar. So MJ shows up to tell him, hey, don't go after this guy. She's like, calm down a bit. Let's try and process our feelings before acting out. Yeah, she's like, I'm here because I care about you. I want to be here for you. And Peter's just like, no, you can go. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to be fine on my own. And that's when he starts hunting the Sandman through the tunnels and stuff like this and just using the black suit in increasingly menacing ways. Right. I will say, one of my favorite things about the black suit in this movie is that Kirk Connors starts off in his explanation by saying, I'm not a biologist, but then proceeds to like identify a symbiote on site and explain all these details about it, which is the most comic book science thing ever, where... Technically, all the scientists in Marvel Comics are specialists in different fields, but they all just do any science. Yeah. It's just science. Yeah, science it up. Uh, So, during the whole, like, black suited Spider-Man thing, he thinks he kills the Sandman and is very happy about it. Yeah. Which is dark. It's creepy. It's that stuff that Connors talks about, about how the suit brings out, especially the worst in you. Yeah. I was reminded of Captain America, the first Avenger, where Stanley Tucci talks about how the super soldier serum enhances whatever is there. It'll make good great. It'll make bad worse. The Venom symbiote just makes you worse. So then this brings us to point four, right? Yes, it does. So MJ calls Harry. She's feeling more disconnected from Peter and so upset. Instead, she calls their good friend Harry. And goes over and spends the day with him. They do some cooking. They do some dancing. And they share a kiss. Yeah, it's like a cute friend hangout until they kiss. Yeah. And she immediately apologizes. He starts asking for forgiveness. She's really upset. She leaves. And then she gets home to hear Peter leaving a voicemail asking her to meet up with him. But in between that... Harry, who had gotten amnesia earlier, has his memories flood back to him. Because a picture talks to him. Right. I want that portrait of Willem Dafoe that is creepy and haunted and sits on the floral chair. I would hang that in my room. It's really creepy, though. That's what's great about it. Ugh, no. Anyway, so the portrait of Willem Dafoe tells Harry that the best way to attack Spider-Man is to strike the heart. So he forces her into breaking up with him or I will kill Peter Parker. Yeah. So MJ is really upset about this, but she tells Peter to meet her in the park. Where Peter's brought the ring. Right. He's like, had it on him for the whole movie. Yeah. And they meet up and MJ tells him, it's not working. I don't want to see you anymore. And Peter's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm in love with you. I'm going to propose to you. Like, we're all good. We're all fine. And she just, because she doesn't want him to die, keeps having to escalate it. It's kind of awkward though, because she's also saying some things that are true. I'm lonely. You're not there for me. She's digging on real emotions, but she has to play them up. She's a good actress. Yes. Mary Jane knows how to uh, bring her emotions forward. There's so many levels there. Yeah. Because Kirsten Dunst is also, also a good actress. actress. Yeah. And eventually, he shows her the ring, and she says she can't be with him because she's fallen for someone else. It's the only thing she can think of that'll really, shut him up. Really shut it down. And she walks away, and Harry says, bravo. Gross. 
He's so creepy. He's so gross. And then Peter calls his good friend Harry to talk about this. Actually, a very fitting use of my good friend. Yeah. <laughs> but this is like a reasonable thing for Peter to do. Yeah. Is he's like, wow, this crappy thing happened to me. I'm going to talk to my best friend. So then Harry's like, it's me. I'm the other guy. Then he gets he gets even creepier where he's saying, uh, this is where like Peter realizes that Harry is slipping back into goblinness. Right. And... Harry's like, oh, you know what I did together? I was there for her. But also, like, bragging about kissing her and, like, it was just like when I used to kiss her. Yeah. When they were dating in high school. Gross. It was really creepy and gross. And so then this takes us to possibly the best part of the movie? Point number five. Double time. Point number five. Peter's Peter, gone crazy. Peter is now single and still possessed by the Venom symbiote. Yes. Which leads him to think he's the coolest cat in town. And this is where I say, someone should give us a real superhero musical. Because I think in this movie, Sam Raimi kind of wanted to. Yeah. At least one musical number. There are a couple. Because there's... But he wants like a full original musical number, not a character performing in a, a musical number. Yes. Because we have, I mean, even like Harry and Mary Jane doing the twist. Yeah. We have Peter bopping through the streets. We have the jazz club scene, which is pretty awesome. Yes. And then even we end with a song again, too. The very last part of the movie is MJ singing I'm Through With Love and Peter coming to her. Oh, right. So there's music at either end of this movie and at, like, all of the key points within it. Yeah. So Sam Raimi wanted to make a musical. Sam Raimi, make us a Spider-Man musical. But make sure that dark gets turned off. It will not work if the dark is still on. I have never seen that musical. Is it a musical? I thought it was just a play. No, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark is a musical. Oh, God. I think it's still showing in Vegas. We gotta go. Do we? Yeah. Do we? Yeah, we do. So Peter is like bobbing through town. And like we were saying, the key to it is that the random women aren't into it. This is a brilliant contrast between Peter thinking he's at top of the world and everyone else thinking he's the worst. Right. Spider-Man himself has turned creepy. Peter has turned creepy. But in both cases, Peter thinks it's awesome. Yeah. I think that's really cool and a really cool idea. And Peter also then starts flirting with Gwen even more. He takes her on a date to the jazz club where Mary Jane is now working. And does it just to piss off Mary Jane. Yeah, it's a real skeevy move. It's the least classy move. But as soon as Gwen Stacy realizes this, she apologizes to Mary Jane. Yeah, Gwen's cool. Yeah, which is a cool move. But in the midst of this, Mary Jane is going to be going up to sing a song, and she's getting started. And this is this like weird, surreal musical number that I love. I don't think we're meant to think it literally happened. No. But it's great. And it's Peter just like jamming on the piano, and he goes, this is for you. And then there's this great dance number. Apparently the alien knows how to play piano. Yeah, which I love. Yeah. So Peter then is dancing with Gwen all over the place, staring down Mary Jane as it goes. That's this awesome number. But then at the end, Gwen is like, that was all for her? And that's where she apologized to Mary Jane and runs out. And then Mary Jane kicks him out. Actually, the bouncers have to come and take him out. Right. The bouncers fight him and then he ends up hitting her. Yeah. He's like in the tussle, like trying to resist the bouncers. He's like, I can go wherever I want. And Mary Jane's trying to break it up and he ends up shoving her to the ground. Right. Which I think is the breaking point where he realizes he's being shitty. Yeah. That's where he realizes something is up. That's where he then goes to the church. Yeah. And he tears the suit off himself. Right. And that night, then May comes to visit him. And at the church, Eddie Brock is doing religion bad because he's asking God to murder someone. Right. He's asking God for murder. And that's then, that rage is kind of what calls to the symbiote. And they merge and become Venom. Right. And they, you know, eat lobsters in a lobster tank and court Michelle Williams. Sure. 
Anyway, May comes to visit Peter, and she's like, you know, you have been off. What the heck is wrong with you? Yeah. She asks him if he proposed, and he says no, because he realized he's not able to put Mary Jane first. Right. I'm not ready. We've really got to tear Peter down in this yes. movie, because he starts off so cocky. Right. He starts off as Spider-Man, but he's got to end as Peter Parker. Yeah. So then he says, oh, what am I going to do? I messed up so bad. She says, you start by doing the hardest thing. You forgive yourself. Because Aunt May exclusively speaks in aphorisms. That's kind of her deal, though. And nothing else. That's what May does. The only other words are just links between aphorisms. Yeah, but it's also, like, good advice. It is good advice, but she's not really a human. She's a walking fortune cookie. Aunt May is one of the, like, all-time great evolution of a comic book character over decades. Because she starts off basically as just, like, an old lady who (laughs) worries that Peter isn't eating enough food. And the joke is, like, he's a superhero. Like, he is not too small. Yeah. And just got sick all the time. And now she's, like, this cool lady who's, like, cracking jokes and, like, going on dates and stuff like that. She's awesome. Yeah. Anyway, that takes us then to point number six. This is a fast one. Yeah. Basically, Venom and the Sandman decide to team up to take out Spider-Man together. Venom, because the symbiote was bonded with Peter, knows everything about Peter. So they kidnap Mary Jane. Peter has to get Harry to help him because he's like, I can't fight them both alone. Which kind of feels like Sam Raimi being like, I can't handle these both alone. Right. And so they get Harry and the two of them fight and they save Mary Jane. Harry dies. And then, like we said, at the end of the movie, MJ is singing and Peter comes to her and they hug. The end. That's nice. All right. Do you find it believable, William? I think I mostly do. Yes, because they are young and dumb. They're young and dumb. And and bad at communication. They need to learn to communicate, and Peter needs to learn to be less selfish. So many movies in Hollywood, it's just like... Talk to each other! Learn how to talk to each other. Just talk! All your problems will be solved. You know what? The thing that you do all the time? (laughs) Do do more of that! Would it help if we gave you a basketball? And you could play basketball. (laughs) And talk to each other over that. Yeah, I feel like Peter Pan needs to hold a basketball and just, like, dribble it while he's talking to MJ. Yeah. Oh, my God. But I do think that is... It's worth... Actually, speaking of that, in one of the James Cameron drafts... Yeah. Peter uses his powers to become, like, the coolest kid at school, where he becomes, like, a sports star and stuff like that. Oh, gross. Uh... So where do we want to rank this? Yeah, where do we want to rank Because I think it mostly works for the romance. Yeah. I don't know if it's as good as, say, Iron Man. Okay, I think that's fair. Because their conflicts sometimes do seem really contrived. Yes. So do you want to go like a seven? I'm thinking a seven. Great, I'm good with that. Cool. Do you think either of them are dateable? I think I definitely think Mary Jane is like just about dateable. Yes. The communication is an issue. End of movie Peter Parker is getting there. I think end of movie Peter Parker is getting there. That's what I was going to say. He's still not dateable, I think. I don't know. It's hard to tell. He's close. He is also Spider-Man. I would not want to date a superhero, though. In our 2017 Oscars extravaganza, I said the best dating advice I got from a 2017 film was be Spider-Man from Spider-Man Homecoming. So we already know that's a plus for me. That is a plus for you, but I don't know. Also, he's so poor. He's very poor. He's like 
really poor. And that's kind of a constant for Peter Parker. Yeah. Okay, not then, if you like, did have to pick... Not that being poor makes you undateable. No. But it's, like, on top of all of his He's other also shit, Spider-Man. He's Spider-Man and has not found a way to monetize that at all. And people do... Well, there's actually a really funny thing in an early Spider-Man comic, because the first thing he did in the comics was try to monetize it, like, the wrestling thing, but then also he's, like, making appearances on late-night TV shows, and they pay him with a check, and there's a scene of, and a, like, Amazing Spider-Man number one or something of Peter Parker in the Spider-Man suit going to a bank and trying to cash a check that's made out to Spider-Man. Oh my god. That's kind of amazing. Yeah, it's great. If you did have to pick someone to date, though, who would it be? So that's the thing. There's not a ton of characters. There aren't that many characters in this movie. In this movie. I mean, I would probably just say Gwen Stacy, because she seems like a decent person. She's cool. Even though she's a non-person. Bruce Campbell, kind of a fun guy. Bruce Campbell, fun. Yeah. I don't think he's actually French. I think he's just playing into his job. I think he's Mysterio. Okay. I'm going with him. Cool. Do you think they'd stay together? For a while, at least. Yeah. Speaking of that, actually, yeah, it's worth noting that Spider-Man 4 was never made. There was a plan to make it? There was a plan to make it. Actually, they were already working on it. They hired concept artists. They hired writers. They were, like, putting plans in place for Spider-Man 4. Sam Raimi was set to come back. Tobey Maguire was set to come back. They were in negotiations to get Kirsten Dunst to come back. This was, like, very much a thing that was happening. They had started brainstorming Spider-Man 5 and 6. Oh, God. Yeah. There was noise about filming 4 and 5 at the same time. And, like, they got... uh, John Malkovich was in talks for The Vulture. Anne Hathaway was basically cast as the Black Cat. Like, this was a movie that was going to happen. But then... Basically, Sam Raimi was frustrated with this movie because of the mess and because of some of the things that we talked about at the beginning. And ultimately, in January 2010, so almost three years after this movie premiered, it's not till January 2010 that he leaves the project because they had a May 2011 release date. And he's like, I can't hit that date and be happy with my product. So this was like very much supposed to get a sequel. The Tobey Maguire stuff was supposed to continue. But Raimi left because he felt like he couldn't hit yeah, Sony's deadline. Couldn't make the movies. So instead, they pushed it back one year and they rebooted in 2012. Okay, though. Do we have any more thoughts? Um, I think uh, that about does it. I love Spider-Man. I still want to make you watch Homecoming. It's great. Sure. Someday. <laughs> anyway, uh, Into the Spider-Verse looks dope. Go see that this weekend. Yeah, I'm excited for that. All right. So uh, looking towards next week, we're going to be starting the We Love the Love Christmas celebrations. Yay, Christmas! Woo! We're doing a modern classic with a tie to Marvel superheroes. John Favreau, director of Iron Man. Oh, right. Is also the director of the 2003 film Elf. It's always fun. It's always fun to watch Elf. Favreau has a good role in this. He's the doctor. Oh, the right. pediatrician. Um, we'll, of course, be following that up. This is a change from the schedule we published on Facebook. We're going to be following that up with Netflix's The Princess Switch, featuring a return appearance by TV movie expert Fifi Fierce. And a return appearance of Vanessa Hudgens. Oh, that's true. Same episode. Yeah. All right. Until then, of course, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. I know we've got some in our inbox. We're going to try to work them into our next schedule. Guys. Please rate and review and subscribe for the show. Please. Give it to us for Christmas. Give us a review on iTunes. That's what we want. Will, what's the best piece of dating advice you got from this film? You know how I feel about reusing dating advice, so I'm not going to say be Spider-Man, even though that's what I want to say. I think the real answer is be (laughs) Spider-Man. The real answer is if you have a crush on somebody, stage an elaborate ceremony to give them the key to the city and get a crowd to chant that your crush should kiss you. So I'm saying Gwen Stacy has the key dating advice here. Because it worked out so great for her. It didn't work out badly for her. I mean, yeah. Is there any resolution to her character? No, she just disappears after she apologizes to Mary Jane. Okay.
Um, and she also doesn't know that Peter and Spider-Man are the same person. Also true. So, what other advices from this movie? Be I mean, the, neg- Spider-Man. the negative advice of this movie is don't get taken over by an alien symbiote that makes you creepy and toxically masculine. You know who else that happened to? Who? Venom the Duck. All right, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I am a ginger. So, I don't know, remember what the line is. <laughs> Will, we've, we've done this show for over it's usually you calendar year. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like guys. Look out, here comes a spider